Welcome to By the Fire. I'm your host, Dave Smale, and this is Captured. Prologue Opulence Extravagance Luxury Boredom It was all he'd ever known. The posh lifestyle of his royal bloodline was better than the ancient legends. Every imaginable amenity, non-essential and creature comfort was at his beck and call. The reason? Oil. Black gold had been discovered in the country's desert sands over 20 years ago. The resulting economic boom was something his ancestors could have never predicted. After the imminent power struggle and bloody coup, his family emerged, one of the wealthiest in the world, overnight. Of course, that was before he was born. He'd never known what life was like without the ability to have anything his heart desired at the snap of his fingers. Nothing was ever held back, at least not material things. All the king's sons, who ranged from age 27 down to six, need only gesture, and servants dashed around the palace, fulfilling their every whim. The younger ones often wanted the latest electronic gadgets or video games. The elders asked for things like new Rolex watches, Italian sports cars, or gorgeous women. Life was different for the king's daughters. Their luxuries were limited. They had to cover themselves in black burkas in public, even on sweltering summer days. Still, their lifestyles were enviable, even under Sharia law. Being royalty came with few drawbacks, but there were at least two. One was the mandatory, constant Quranic studies. The other was inevitable boredom that always came after all their daily desires had been fulfilled. And such was the young prince's current status. He was one of the middle children, one among many princes, nowhere close to heir apparent. As such, he often struggled with a sense of purpose in life. Since he knew he would never be the king, or emir, as kings were referred to in his country, he was stuck. Not a bad position, most would agree. It certainly could be worse. He could be one of those peasant types he sometimes saw on TV. But from his perspective, he was born a prince, would live his entire life as a prince, and eventually die a prince. He could never ascend, nor become anything else, unless he was disowned. Born in the middle of a ladder from which he could be knocked off, but was forbidden to climb. At only 13, though living in the lap of luxury, he often struggled with hopelessness. His life trajectory was predictable. Someday he'd be given a do-nothing position within his father's government, just like his older brothers. He'd be the minister of something unimportant with no real power and nothing to look forward to. The prince wasn't sure how many more years of this he could take. He finished his Quranic studies for the day. Though highly intelligent, memorizing and reciting entire chapters of Islam's holiest book, 
It was meaningless to him. Nothing more than a bunch of empty words from yester millennia. Something to get through, in order to do the things he really wanted to do. Whatever those were. The young prince ate a feast of a lunch, then played every video game in his arsenal on his enormous big-screen TV for hours. He was tired of them all. Out of boredom, he switched off the video games in favor of TV channels, hoping for something entertaining. It was unlikely, he knew, with the censorship his father imposed on the nation's media. It was rare to find anything other than state-controlled news, some babbling mullah, or low-budget ads for local businesses. At least the ads were sometimes funny, because of how awful they were. He'd seen the commercial for Almaki's Rug Emporium so many times he had it memorized. Whatever your carpeting dilemma, we have you covered at Almaki's Rug Emporium. Mr. Almaki's delivery was so robotic, his pathetic pun attempt was completely lost not to mention his massive belly, which took up half the screen. The prince searched the dearth of available channels, finding all the things he expected, except for Mr. Almaki's commercial. He gave every channel a chance to grab his attention, though certain it wouldn't happen. Then he'd shut off his TV and... And what? Find something to do. Anything was better than this torturous boredom, he decided. Maybe he'd go play fight with one of his younger brothers. Or torment one of his sisters. He was good at that. He flipped to the last channel on the dial and was about to shut the TV off. On the screen was a familiar sight. An imam behind a microphone. Just as the channel came into focus, the imam's fist shot to the sky. The sound delayed a moment while the satellite channel finished loading. The volume came on just in time to hear the imam shout, Jihad! The crowd erupted. The camera panned the audience. Thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of men were in attendance to hear this imam speak. The picture transitioned to the imam, zooming in on his face. The man's eyes seemed to flame, a passion so intense it seemed he'd leap through the screen at any moment. Death to Israel! Death to the West! The imam declared. The crowd roared once again. The prince realized this imam was different than the other drab, boring mullahs he'd seen on other channels. Zamadi is rising and will bring this corrupt world to order! The Holy Quran tells us the Zionist scum and their allies will be destroyed! There will be no stopping him once the... Deafening applause drowned out the rest of the Imam's sentence, but he didn't seem to mind. He smiled, lapped up the praise, adjusted his glasses and shuffled his notes on the podium. As the applause subsided, the imam's countenance changed, apparently coinciding with the change of subjects. My brothers, none of what I have said to you today will happen without your involvement. There is but one way to guarantee 
a place in Allah's eternal paradise to be martyred for his sake. We need men to arise, men who are not afraid of death. Those who are fearful will be rejected by Allah. But those who are not will live in palaces with not one or two, but 72 virgins whose purity renews each night. Who among you is willing? The crowd's applause caused the big screen TV speakers to rattle in protest. Men jumped up and down, raising their hands. Some waved banners, others chanted. The imam's passionate delivery ignited a fire in the crowd of men. And, for the first time in his life, in his heart, the prince felt a spark. Chapter 1 Todos Hacemos Sacrificios His life's motto stretched from shoulder to shoulder across his back, immortalized in black tattoo ink. We all make sacrifices. The cryptic message, now a faded green against his tan skin, though inscribed in Spanish, was drawn in Old English calligraphic font, a signature jailhouse tattoo. The lifestyle Raul Diaz Jr. had chosen required that he make sacrifices. Long ago, he realized, he'd sacrificed his chances of gaining honest employment, raising a traditional family, or being normal. Therefore, he routinely sacrificed the lives of others for self-glorification and the furtherance of his gang. Further evidence, he was true to his motto. Since becoming a gang leader a few months ago, Raul had become a celebrity in his neighborhood, or barrio. But unlike celebrities, in Raul's world, when someone didn't like you, they didn't just avoid your movies or denigrate you on social media. Instead, unscrupulous men from rival gangs kept him in their crosshairs 24-7-365. Every moment was life or death. Even a mundane task like walking to the corner meat market to buy beef for his abuela. But Raul was willing to make that sacrifice. After all, she was making her famous tacos carne asada tonight. He made the purchase without incident and exited the market, briefly peering up at its sign which read Carniceria. In English it meant butcher shop. He thought for a moment how appropriate the title was applied to his life. The damage he could do with his pocket knife, his cuchillo, was akin to what a butcher could do with a meat cleaver. He smiled, casually jaywalking across Glen Oaks Boulevard, a pack of carne in his hand. It was a scorching hot August day in Southern California's San Fernando Valley, another cloudless, moisture-free day in the Southland, except for the perspiration of any poor soul who dared venture outdoors. Even now, a bead of sweat formed above his brow and rolled down the side of his face before dripping onto his shirt. He didn't notice. The shirt was already soaked around the neck and armpits. 
Raoul stepped onto the opposite sidewalk seconds before a car whooshed by. Valley drivers didn't brake for jaywalkers. Some sped up. Seconds later, he turned left into the neighborhood. Ahead one block was his street. He strolled at his usual pace. Slow, but not too slow. Half a block later, his ear picked up the sound of a vehicle approaching from the rear. A base subwoofer thumped, and two modified exhaust pipes growled. A telltale sign of a lowrider. He glanced over his shoulder to see a bright blue lowered Buick Regal cruising almost as slow as he was walking. Its speckle-flake metallic paint produced thousands of tiny glitters as it glided under the noonday sun. From his brief glance, he knew the vehicle's occupants were Essays from San Fe, rival gangsters from San Fernando, a suburb a half-mile northwest. Raul was less than a block from his house, but if these guys were looking to jump him, he needed to draw them away. No matter what, he could not expose where he lived and put his family in danger. Raul faced forward and strolled nonchalantly, hoping the car would just pass him so he could get home. It was now only a few feet behind him, while his street was still 20 yards ahead. The lowrider pulled parallel with him. The booming stereo volume was muted, and a voice said, De donde eres, vato? Where are you from, dude? This was not a literal question of where Raul was born. It was urban speak for which gang are you affiliated with? This was the question that usually led to a brawl, a stabbing, a shooting, or all three. Raul knew from his wealth of experience in the matter, having been in a gang since he was 13 years old. He rolled his head toward the Buick with all the speed of a sloth, taking in the lowrider and its occupants. He counted four. The man that asked the question was leaning out the front passenger window. He wore a white A-shirt, colloquially known as a wife-beater. On his head was a folded black-and-white paisley bandana which covered his forehead and nearly concealed his eyes. His slick-backed hair sheened in the sun behind the bandana. Old English calligraphic jailhouse tattoos jutted from beneath his wife-beater. Judging from the little bit he could see, Raoul guessed the man was short, and the glare of the sun made it impossible for him to make out anything about the other three. He could have answered the gangster's inquiry by saying, En ningún parte. Nowhere. But he wouldn't. That would be cowardly. And he couldn't. If word got back to his fellow gang members that he hadn't claimed his gang when challenged, the consequences would be devastating. Although Raoul didn't want a confrontation so close to home, he was still unwilling to back down from the challenge. Instead of answering verbally, Raoul formed a sign with his right hand. In two motions, he touched his thumb and index finger to form a circle, simultaneously grouping his other three fingers together parallel to the ground. Then he flicked his wrist, pointing his grouped fingers at the ground, causing his hand to make the letter P, 
The P stood for both the name of his city and his gang, Pacoima. He casually presented the gang sign to the man leaning out the window and continued walking, appearing unconcerned by whatever may come of it. The man only smirked and gave a quick head tilt. The car accelerated. Raoul was not surprised. This was not a drive-by shooting, but he knew what was about to happen. The men in the car, like him, were likely armed, though not with guns. This was common in Hispanic gangs. While they did use firearms, they didn't usually carry them during the day. The reason was simple. Police. Gangsters were routinely stopped and questioned by cops. The less incriminating paraphernalia on your person, the better. Raoul watched as both he and the vehicle approached the upcoming intersection, which also happened to be his street. They'd cut him off, jump out of the car, and commence beating or killing him. Most likely the latter. Though his pulse quickened, he masterfully showed no sign of concern. But to his surprise, the car continued through the intersection. Raoul watched it speed up for another block before turning left and disappearing down another street. Though dumbfounded, he had the presence of mind to walk past his street in order to keep its identity a secret, just in case they were somehow still watching. When the lowrider was well out of sight, Raoul stopped and listened for another 30 seconds until he could no longer hear the exhaust. He turned back and headed for home, breathing a sigh of relief as he did. His street was not a cul-de-sac, but a dead end. It ran smack into the side wall of the 118 freeway. His house was the last one on the block, which meant that the highway was basically in his backyard. A rather unpleasant fact, especially when trying to sleep. The never-ending supply of Fast and Furious wannabes zoomed by at all hours, never considering they were driving through someone's backyard. In the real bad place to get trapped by four gangsters, Raoul thought, approaching the gate. His thoughts nagged him. He was glad to not have to fight for his life, but it bothered him that they'd just driven off. Something didn't seem right. He unlatched the annoying three-and-a-half-foot-tall gate at the edge of the property. Both the gate and the fence were pointless, more of an inconvenience than an effective means of keeping anyone out. Their next-door neighbor had an eight-foot cinder-block wall and a six-foot-by-twelve-foot-wide retractable wrought-iron gate. Raoul's measly chain-link fence looked pathetic next to their neighbor's fortress. Raoul maneuvered around the slew of dirty, sun-weathered toys strewn about the front yard. A doll here, a broken tricycle there, a pink teacup over there. All of them belonged to his four-year-old sister, Sophia. His mother worked most of the time, and, even though Raoul was unemployed, he considered watching his sister a job. It didn't pay, but he didn't care. He had a mode of income, albeit illegal. He adored his little sister, who was full of both innocence and energy. Besides the glory his gang status brought him, Sophia was his reason for living. The only other people in the house besides Sophia were his mother and his grandma, his abuela. 
Raoul was the only male in the house. He had no idea who his father was. His mother never talked about him. Sophia's father was a deadbeat, to say the least. He disappeared immediately after he found out he had gotten Raoul's mother pregnant. Raoul had resolved that if he ever ran into the man on the street, he'd beat him to within an inch of his life. Or maybe just go ahead and finish that last inch. Sophia came running around the side of the house where she'd been playing. A dark-haired, deeply tanned Barbie doll was clutched in one hand, a doll hairbrush in the other. She ran up to Raoul and hugged him around his waist. He'd only been gone thirty minutes, but that was enough to warrant a welcome-home hug from his little sis. Ay, you're sweaty, she said as her head touched his sweat-soaked shirt. Yeah, now so are you, he replied. Ew, she cried. He smiled, patting her on the back as she let go, and went back to playing, this time in the front yard. Raoul walked up the cracked concrete steps to the front door. As he fished in his pocket for his keys, his hand brushed against a plastic bag. He'd forgotten. In the bag were two small yellow pills. It wasn't Advil, but a methamphetamine known as Speed. Oh yeah, he thought as he touched the baggie. I got to call that guy. Got to sell this today. He took the keys out of his pocket and unlocked the deadbolt. As he was reaching for the doorknob, he realized something. What was that noise? He listened for a moment. A car engine. It was nearly unnoticeable at first since the busy Glen Oaks Boulevard was just over a block away. In his neighborhood, it was common for people to rev their engines so loudly they could be heard for blocks. But this was not an engine revving. It was a vehicle approaching. And it was coming fast. By the time Raoul turned around, the bright blue Buick was screeching to a halt in front of the gate. All four doors flew open, and the men he'd assumed were going to leave him alone jumped out. Only there were not four of them. There were five. He wasn't sure how they'd found him, but right now it didn't matter. What mattered was that five very dangerous men were about to attack him at his own house. Worse yet, between him and them was his four-year-old sister. Sophia, get inside, he yelled as he vaulted off the front porch landing, clearing the steps and landing in a full sprint toward her. Sophia was frozen, her gaze fixed on the approaching men. Raoul grabbed her shoulders and jerked her out of her trance. Ahora! Now, he yelled in her face, then shoved her toward the house. She snapped back to reality and squealed as she darted for the front door. Raoul turned toward the men and ran. One of the attackers was already scaling the fence. A short, skinny kid with pale skin and slick back auburn hair. He looked like a teenager. Hopefully that meant he was an inexperienced fighter. The kid was perched atop the fence, then leapt the way an entertainment wrestler flies off the top rope. The fence wobbled as the kid flew at Raoul, both arms outstretched, evidently intending to tackle him. Raoul used the foolish kid's gravity and his own momentum to thrust a perfect uppercut to the kid's face. 
He caught the boy under the bridge of the nose and was sure he'd felt teeth. The kid's head whipped backwards, then forwards, before he landed on the dirt in an unconscious heap. Raoul didn't have time to check whether the kid was unconscious. He moved on to the next threat. Two men were hopping the fence more smartly than the kid had. Raoul wasted no time. He had been made a leader in his gang for a reason. He was fast, smart, and always kept a small knife, a cuchillo, sometimes called a shank, in his front pant pocket. He pulled it out, snapped it open with a flick of his wrist as the gangster closest to him struggled to get over the wobbly fence. Raoul jammed the knife into the man's side just under his ribs. The man cried out in pain, instinctively covering the wound with his hand, causing him to collapse the rest of the way over the fence. Cuchillo! The man cried as he hit the dirt at Raoul's feet. Not only was the word cuchillo Spanish for knife, it was also Raoul's street name. He gave it only a split second of regard. He lunged at the second guy, swinging the knife in an arc toward him. The blade sunk into the gangster's right upper pectoral, just under his collarbone, but not before he got in a well-aimed elbow to Raoul's jaw. The man also cried out in pain. It was then that Raoul realized he recognized him as someone he'd seen around the neighborhood a few times. So that's how they found me, he thought. The man collapsed to the ground, the upper fence rail hitting his sternum on the way down. Raoul removed the knife and jammed it into the man's shoulder blade as he fell, just to ensure he would not be getting back up. All of it had happened in less than ten seconds. Three down, two left. His final two opponents, one short, one tall, approached slowly. After seeing the results of their fellow gangsters, they decided against hopping the fence. The short one opened the gate and ran behind Raoul, flanking him. He was the one who'd issued the challenge. Now that he was closer, Raoul read his tattoos, one of which caught his attention. It said, Rapido. He knew the name. Rapido was a leader within the San Fe gang, with a reputation that he'd never lost a fight, because he was so, well, Rapido. The last man was overweight with a ponytail. He was Raoul's height of 6'1", but outweighed him by 70 or 80 pounds. Gordo, Raoul thought, the Spanish word for a fat man. Gordo strolled through the open gate and faced Raoul. He was surrounded. Rapido took a swing, connecting with the back of Raoul's head, and followed up with another and another in rapid succession. They weren't the hardest hits he'd ever taken, but the man didn't miss. Rapido backed up, anticipating Raoul's next move. Raoul turned, swinging his shank. The knife meant nothing but air. When he missed with the knife, Raoul briefly lost his balance, slightly dazed from Rapido's punches. At the same moment, Gordo drew back and swung violently for Raoul's head. Unlike Rapido, Gordo was slow. Raoul saw the punch coming in his peripheral, regained his balance and ducked. Gordo missed, lost his balance and fell onto Raoul's back. He was crushingly heavy, but apparently also street smart. The big man repositioned himself on Raoul's back so he was directly behind. In desperation, Raoul swung the knife behind him, cutting and stabbing nothing. 
Gordo secured Raul's knife-wielding hand with one arm and locked him in a chokehold with the other. The big man may have been slow, but he had titan-like strength, too strong for Raul to wrestle free. While Gordo choked Raul, Rapido stepped in and landed four deadly accurate jabs to Raul's face before he could raise his free hand to block. His eye began swelling. Rapido backed up and kicked Raul several times in the ribs and stomach. Raul struggled, bent in half with Gordo on his back, coughing and choking. Each of Rapido's kicks forced air out of his lungs. Gordo's chokehold guaranteed no air would be coming back in. The edges of Raul's vision dulled. He sensed the blackout coming on. From inside the house, his little sister screamed. His mind went into panic mode. What would these men do with his family? They wouldn't leave them alive. They were witnesses. He pictured them killing his abuela and his little sister when they were done with him. No way he was going to let that happen. With his last morsel of available strength, Raoul squatted. The big man's weight shifted forward as he slid off Raoul's back. The headlock loosened slightly, allowing Raoul to gulp in a mouthful of air. Another kick found his left side. His ribs throbbed, but he ignored the pain. Gordo re-secured the chokehold, never losing his grasp of Raoul's knife hand. Raoul put his free hand on the ground, stealing himself, then engaged every muscle in his body. He exploded upward with his legs, throwing his free arm back. He hoped the shift would break the chokehold, but no joy. The big man held on, but the collective momentum caused them both to stumble. They struck the fence with the small of their backs and flipped backwards over it. Raoul's legs went skyward as the world spun above him. Instinctively, he raised his free arm above his head just in time. His forearm hit the sidewalk rather than his crown. His legs followed. Gordo was not as fortunate. The back pockets of his cotton twill pants snagged on the top of the chain-link fence. He hadn't released the chokehold, thus he hadn't put his hands up to brace for impact. His head smacked the sidewalk with a loud clap. Wailing from the sting, he hung helplessly upside down, kicking his legs to no avail. Rapido came to his aid, unsnagging his pockets from the fence. Gordo's weight came down on the back of his neck, while his legs awkwardly folded. He rolled to his side, finally getting to his feet, and tried to stand up. Dazed, the big man stumbled and dropped to one knee. Crumpled on the sidewalk, Raoul used the precious few moments to gather his bearings and get some air. Before he could do the former, Rapido, the only one uninjured thus far, hopped the fence, landing a few feet from Raoul. He promptly kicked Raoul in the face three times. In his weakened state, Raoul was unable to block the kicks. As Rapido wound up for a fourth kick, Raoul moved an arm up in front of his face just in time to block the swinging Nike. Rapido moved to Raoul's midsection and delivered another field goal. A voice Raoul didn't recognize said, Get the knife, Essay! The kid whom Raoul had knocked out sat on the dirt cupping one hand just below his chin. Blood poured from his nose and mouth, pulling in his palm. Rapido stopped and hopped back over the fence. The other two gangsters were still writhing in agony, 
desperately trying to stop their bleeding. One of them cried, Yama una ambulancia! Call an ambulance. Rapido ignored him, scooping Raul's knife off the dirt. It had fallen out of his grasp when he and Gordo toppled over the fence. And now, the much faster gang leader was going to use it to end Raul's life. Cuchillo was killed with his own cuchillo, Raul thought as he labored to his feet. Gordo finally got to his feet, clutching the back of his head, which was bleeding. He eyed Raul with a glare so sinister, one might have thought it was demonically inspired. Disoriented from being nearly choked out, Raul struggled to assess his options. His face, ribs, and stomach throbbed from Rapido's attacks. His left eye was almost swollen shut, but he didn't have time to be disoriented. He shook his head as if to reset his mind. It worked. Raul was keenly aware of Gordo, who was ten feet in front of him. Rapido was behind him, on the other side of the fence. To avoid being killed, he had two options. Wait until Rapido came over the fence and try his luck fighting two deadly men at once, or... Without further thought, he planted his feet and lunged at the big man. It was a long shot, but it was his only chance. He closed the gap in one second, tucked his right shoulder and barreled into the large man's belly. Caught off guard, Gordo folded at the waist and groaned. Raul tackled him with sufficient force to knock him off the curb. They seemed to hang in the air for several moments. Raul held on, driving his shoulder hard into Gordo's stomach. The big man's spine met the street with a disgusting slap. The rest of his girth thudded, his bloody head striking the ground for the second time within a minute. Raul rose, his strength spent, the big man lying unconscious at his feet. Rapido hopped the fence, armed with Raul's knife, and approaching quickly. They locked eyes. Rapido possessed a cold, menacing gaze which Raul had only seen a few times, in the eyes of the worst gangbangers the city had to offer. He knew the short man wasn't playing around. He was going to kill him in the next few seconds. And he knew he did not have the strength, speed, or stamina to fight him. His thoughts raced. He tried to figure out his options. Maybe he could run and leave his house unguarded with a bunch of rival gangsters in the front yard? Even if four out of five have been disabled, no way. But if he stayed and fought, it would be over in seconds. Maybe. But he'd rather fight than run like a coward. I got to stay and fight. He suddenly found himself resolved to the certainty of death. At least he would die honorably, having taken out four of the five men who jumped him. Maybe his little sister would remember how valiantly he'd fought to protect her and their house. Rapido dashed towards him. Santeyase! Rapido yelled. Raul could barely raise his arms from exhaustion. He assumed a fighting stance that looked more like a drunk blocking an oncoming train. The short man swung the knife. Raul jumped back just at the right moment as the blade passed where his neck had been just a millisecond before. Rapido came at Raul lunging, thrusting the blade straight at Raul's stomach. His name was accurate. He was fast. 
Raoul did not have the speed or the energy to dodge this attack. He managed to twist his body left. His left forearm took the brunt of it, being sliced open. Hot blood poured out, covering his arm, dripping onto his shirt and shoes. Policia! called the young gangster with the bloody nose. Raoul and Rapido both heard him, but neither dared avert their eyes from one another. Though Raoul was exhausted and cut open, Rapido dared not underestimate him. It was now or never. Rapido lunged, pivoted to his left, and swung the knife with his right hand. Raoul jumped to his right to dodge, but didn't see the short gangster pivot again. Raoul's right cheek was met with a fist that flew in seemingly from nowhere. Rapido had faked him out, leaving Raoul dazed. The short man positioned himself to capitalize and end this. Raoul stumbled back, his world spinning. Rapido darted toward him, knife at the ready. It would be over in another second. The first police car whipped around the corner, tires squealing, lights spinning, siren off, and engine roaring as it sped toward them. The street was short, only two houses on the right and three on the left before the dead end. The cruiser screeched to a stop as a second cruiser came around the corner from the other direction. The officers in the lead car bounded from it with amazing speed. Rapido stopped cold. Upon seeing the diminutive gang leader holding the bloody knife and the plethora of gangsters strewn about bleeding or otherwise incapacitated, both officers unholstered their weapons. Drop the knife and get down on the ground with your hands behind your head now, said one officer. Rapido complied immediately. You too, the officer yelled at Raoul. On the ground! Raoul did as he was told. Semi-confident he'd be released as soon as they figured out it was all self-defense. As the officers descended on the unsavory bunch, they handcuffed Rapido, the two stab gangsters, and Raoul. He didn't initially protest, knowing that it was protocol for the police to cuff everyone until they were able to sort out what had happened. The kid with the bloody nose had fled. The unconscious Gordo was rolled onto his stomach and handcuffed, but awakened once the officers hoisted him. He thrashed once he realized he was being arrested and was awarded with a taser. The officers Mirandized each gangster while an ambulance was called for the injured. Another squad car arrived, then another. With all the spinning light bars, the street looked like a crime scene in a Hollywood movie. Raoul and the others were pushed toward the cruisers. Hey, what are you taking me for? Raoul protested. Relax, one officer said. We're not taking you anywhere until the EMTs come check you out. Plus, you're bleeding, and I don't feel like cleaning it off the back seat. You can't arrest me, Raoul said. They came at me, at my house. It's self-defense. Oh, yeah? What's your name? The officer asked. Raul. Raul what? Diaz, Raul replied. And you live here? The officer said, motioning at Raul's house. Yeah. Can you prove it? Got some ID? The officer asked. Yeah. Inside my house, Raul quipped jerking from the officer's grasp. Look, you better watch it, the arresting officer retorted. 
or we can get you for resisting arrest. Now sit down on the curb. Raul again did as he was told. Moments later, two ambulances arrived. One took the two badly wounded gangsters away from the scene while Raul waited for the police to do whatever it was they were doing. They sat in their squad car, talking into their radios and punching keys on the police car computer. Meanwhile, the EMTs from the second ambulance looked at Raul's injuries. They asked for Raul to be uncuffed so they could bandage his forearm. An officer did so, but recuffed him with his hands in front. After cleaning it, applying pressure, then ointment, gauze, and a ton of medical tape, the EMTs gave him an ice pack for his eye and determined he was otherwise fine. The officer recuffed his hands behind his back. The EMTs moved on to Gordo, checking his injuries. Apparently, Raoul had injured him severely because they wrapped his head with a large bandage and put him on a stretcher before loading him onto an ambulance. That left Rapido and Raoul. With not even a scratch on him, Rapido was put in a cruiser and taken away. After another 15 minutes, one of the arresting officers walked over to Raoul. Raul Hector Diaz Jr.? The arresting officer asked. Yeah? Can I go now? Raul asked. Not so fast. Want to tell me why these guys would show up at your house and attack you? Raul shrugged. I don't even know him. Never seen him before. Ever? The officer asked. Raul shook his head. I don't think you're telling me the truth. You got quite a few priors. On your feet. The officer helped him to his feet and guided him to the cruiser. They bent him in half on the cruiser's hood, the hot metal practically burning through his shirt. Spread your feet, the officer said. He began to frisk Raoul. Why are you searching me for? Raoul asked. Quiet. As the officer patted him down, Raoul realized that he'd forgotten about the bag in his back pocket. He hoped the officer wouldn't notice it, uh, no such luck. The officer fished it out and held it in front of Raoul's face. Allergies? The officer asked sarcastically. Raoul cursed under his breath, silently chiding himself for forgetting it. He was led to the back seat of the squad car, where he was pressed into the seat by the top of his head. As the cruiser made a roundabout on the dead-end street, Raoul saw the innocent face in the window. Sophia. You've been listening to By the Fire, and I really hope you enjoyed what you heard. Why don't you let me know, one way or the other? Leave me a review on Apple or on Podchaser. Or you can send me an email, info at davesmail.com. Also, if you go to my website and sign up for my newsletter, you'll get a free novella, Safe House. I'll be back next week with another chapter of Captured. So until then, thanks again and God bless.